Hey, what up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, centered from Reality Podcast. It's March 1st. I can't even believe that. I just can't even fathom that, but it is March. We are into the third month of the year. Oh my God. Anyways, anyways, that existential aside, I am watching it snow. Um, huge storm up in Tahoe and Tahoe Truckee. Luckily down here in Reno, it's a little bit less snowy. I was able to get out on a nice run. I got soaking wet, but hey, you know, at least I was able to get out. So that was good. But it's been it's been pretty damn wet the last couple days. And I was thinking about this on my run. I'm like, I don't know if I lived a past life where I was like a weather beacon or maybe I pissed off the rain gods or something. But it seems like pretty much every time I go out on a run, the second I go outside, the weather just immediately gets worse, starts raining, hailing, blizzard, and I end up just soaked. Honestly, I, I enjoy that. I, I enjoy kind of being out in a storm. But there are some days where you're like, God, I didn't wear enough layers. I wish I had a plan better for this. <sighs> All my struggles. Life is so hard. <laughs> Anyways, the runs have been going super well lately. Um, feeling probably the best I've felt running in a very, very long time. So I'm really excited about all that. Currently signing up for a bunch of races. I'm actually kind of depressed, though, the, the Reno half marathon that I got fourth in last year and would love to try to win this year. I will be gone. I will be out of the country, unfortunately, that same weekend. So for the last couple months, I've been telling friends and other people I run with, I'm like, Oh, I plan on I plan on doing this one. That's my big eyes set on the prize race, and uh, I won't even be in the country, so that was too bad. But there's other races, so we're all good. But anyways, I guess the main things I want to talk about today, I want to talk about what I think is happening in the Supreme Court, where the conservative justices are actually going to hear Trump's immunity case, which is total BS. And they are pushing this down and delaying it, and it looks like they are going to hear it in late April now. And so the big worry here is that by the time the Supreme Court maybe decides on this, and then you have the other trials come up, the election might already be happening, and potentially Trump will never see a trial. And it looks like the Supreme Court conservative justices are doing this to kind of almost help Trump. It seems that way. They don't have to do this. They don't have to hear this insane immunity case, and they are. And again, this is just another horrible sign for the 2024 election. Depresses me, so I'll help depress you guys as well. I also actually am going to spend most of the episode talking about basically the changing economics of skiing. And what I mean here is that I want to talk about how the downhill industry in the United States has practically shifted its entire business model, its entire economic model. I want to talk about the Icon Pass, the Epic Pass, and how those have influenced basically more access and also weirdly less access, more chaos, busier resorts. I also want to talk about discriminatory pricing and how that actually shows the bigger macro trends in the United States economy because we're also seeing the fast food industry. Wendy's was talking about doing this. Airlines are using discriminant pricing as well. And it's just something really worth talking about. So I I want to talk about the economics of skiing and and just what it tells us about our society right now, which is something that I've been wanting to do for quite some time. And so anyways, first off, though, <laughs> I, I, was, I was reading a really good piece earlier today that I just wanted to touch on for a minute, and it's by Ann Applebaum, who I'm a huge fan of. She is married to a Polish politician, spends about half the time, half the year, I guess you could say, in uh, Warsaw, which I think is a wonderful city, by the way. And anyways, she talks about just how 
a lot of Americans don't totally understand Trump's say, I don't want to say support for Russia, but his foreign policies that seem to be against Ukraine. She says that a lot of people think that he's just an isolationist, like old school ones back in the day, back in, you know, the 1930s and whatnot. And she said that is just the wrong message. And in reality, Trump is, he, he's not some of some of these old fashioned isolation, isolationists, right? Um, Trump wants to almost remain engaged with the world, but on different terms. So her point is that he actually does want to be involved in the world. He's not an isolationist, but he just doesn't agree with kind of the post-World War II order and our NATO alliance-based system. So it's not that he's an isolationist. He just likes different people. And she wrote something that, that kind of worried me. She says, Trump has said repeatedly that he wants a deal with Russian President Vladimir Putin. And maybe this is what he means. If Ukraine is partitioned or if Ukraine loses the war, then Trump could twist that situation to his own advantage. She then later writes, perhaps some speculate Trump wants to let Russian back into the international oil markets and get something in return for that. She also then says maybe he just wants to damage President Joe Biden or he thinks Putin will help him win the 2024 election. She does remind us that in 2016, the Russian hacking of the DNC was very helpful to Trump. So this is something that I think we need to reiterate going into this election is that Trump isn't an isolationist. I, I sometimes just want to gouge my eyes out when I'm talking with someone I respect and they're like, I don't really like Trump, but he definitely is an isolationist. He doesn't like wars. He doesn't like all of that stuff. And I'm going, <laughs> Russian invasion, eh, I think some of Trump's policies led up to that. Trump's tariffs, horrendous against China. Uh, the, the Abraham Accords, moving... The, the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, all of these things, I think, kind of set the path for October 7th and what we're seeing now. Trump is not an isolationist. He just is interested in his own interest, and he's becoming more autocratic along the way. And also what really bummed me out in this article is that Ann Applebaum talks about meeting, um, I think his name's pronounced Ant Anton uh, Hofdreiter, who is a member of the German parliament when she was at the Munich uh, Security Conference, I think a week or two ago. And apparently he told Applebaum that he fears that Europe could someday be competing against three autocracies, Russia, China, and the United States. And she ends the article by saying, when he said that, it was my turn to shake my head, not because I didn't believe him, but because it was hard to hear. And she just talks time and time again about just how dangerous Trump's policies are and the Republicans need to stand up against him, though we know they won't, because at the end of the day, if we don't help out Ukraine and we let Trump just keep dominating the Republican Party's foreign policy, even though he's not even president right now, it's good for China. It's good for Russia. It makes us look weak. And doesn't Trump always say that we look weak and he wants to make us look strong again? <sighs> it's not how to do it. This guy is self-interested, dangerous, and getting closer and closer to the White House again. And it's not good. So anyways, let's focus on skiing and how the ski industry's entire model has changed. I would argue I think it's made skiing worse and less accessible, but also I think it shows just greater macroeconomic trends in the United States right now. So a little background if you guys, I mean, I'm sure if you listen, you know this by now, but I, I grew up skiing. I grew up in Truckee. I'm a, I've, always, I've spent my whole life skiing. I learned to ski probably before I could even ride a bicycle. So it's definitely been part of my life. And I, I mainly Nordic ski, like I did junior nationals and a lot of stuff for that back in the day. So Nordic was more my sport, but I also downhill skied. And I'll never forget... In middle school and early high school, I was either honor roll or mainly distinguished scholar, meaning, you know, you got good grades and you were put on a list. And basically, if you wanted to go ski at Alpine Meadows or Squaw, 
if you made honor roll, you could ski for like five bucks. So you didn't need a pass. You could, you know, once in a while, we'll go out with friends and ski. And the resorts were always busy. I mean, Squaw's always been busy because it had the Olympics there. Not particularly surprising, right? Holiday weekends, yeah, you probably wouldn't want to go ski there on Christmas unless you had to, that type of stuff. Yeah, if I went to Mammoth where my aunt and uncle lived and my dad and I wanted to ski for the day, yeah, it was not cheap. It's never been cheap, for sure. Skiing has always been somewhat of an expensive sport, right? But oh, it was back in 2021, I did an episode on the old podcast, The Tonic Accord, called COVID Killed Mountain Towns. And I talked about one side of this, which was the idea that remote work, a strange housing bubble, people wanting to avoid being in cities, you saw a lot of second homeowners come and work remotely and stay full-time in ski towns. And that ranged from places in Colorado and Utah and in Tahoe to Mammoth, etc. And towns changed overnight, and all of a sudden, people were willing to buy cash upfront without appraisals to move into houses, housing market blows up, cost of living gets more expensive, you lose your labor markets, all of that. And so you you saw mountain towns slowly start getting too expensive, busier. And so I talked about that. But also just in my time living in the area and seeing the changes, you saw COVID do that. But then at the same time, you've also seen the rise of the Icon Pass, the Epic Pass, people traveling a lot more to ski, ski tickets getting more expensive, and basically awful traffic and just congestion and chaos where it's actually kind of a pain in the ass to go skiing sometimes, and so a lot of locals just don't or get an early pass and go on work days, that type of thing. And so luckily I always Nordic skied, and I still Nordic ski a lot, and that's been a little bit less touched, but even Nordic has gotten more expensive, gotten busier, etc. So it is really interesting just to see the, the changes, I guess. And it's, it's, it's kind of a tough one to me because you want to see the sport grow and become more popular and accessible to demographics of people that maybe would have never been able to do so or get involved in the sport. And however, it seems like there is a growing contradiction where the sport is busier and more popular than ever, but the changing business models and economics of the ski industry have made it so that the prices are discriminatory unless you have, say, a a pass that you bought early on. But then also you have to add in the price of day tickets, accommodations, the travel. If you have a family, it's tough. So it seems like people really can't just go on a ski trip anymore, especially if they have a big family, unless they got passes early on or they're just wealthy. And I'll get into the economics of this and kind of the monopolistic tendencies we're seeing in a moment. But I guess I find this kind of sad because I feel like the future of skiing is going to be interesting and very uncertain because all you have to do is go online and you'll and search these issues and you'll find articles about how rising expenses have killed the ski bum culture or how alpine sports may not even exist in 20 years because of climate change, especially in places like the Alps. And then you read about how, you know, the Epic Pass and now the Icon Pass, along with corporate monopolies, have just made the sport different and just less accessible than before. So let's get into it though, because I think the economics of the ski industry in the United States um, tell us a lot about larger macroeconomic trends, ranging from travel in general to airlines, to restaurants, to just how the average American consumer can interact with markets. And so basically my main argument here is that skiing is changing And basically, monopoly power is accumulating inside of the industry, and it is 
it is actually causing a lot of growth technically, but it's, it, it's, it's also leading to a lot of negative externalities along the way. And I don't know how sustainable down the road it's going to be. And now I'm aware that I have listeners on this who don't ski or follow the industry. And I'll try to give a background and explain as to why, even if you're not interested in skiing, why this is still interesting. So a lot of resorts are owned by Vail Resorts. Now it operates on three continents. Huge, huge organization. And I believe its headquarters is in Colorado outside of Denver. So to put it into perspective, we're in 2024 now and Vail is just like a behemoth. And I think it was back in 2008, it only had like five resorts. But at that time, it launched the Epic Pass. And I give The Economist a lot of credit because it has constantly actually put out pretty interesting articles about skiing over the years and about the different struggles the industry is facing. And it has a good article from a few days ago that talks about the Epic Pass and the industry in general. And it writes about the Epic Pass, or, or more correctly, what life was like before the Epic Pass. It writes, Before, season tickets for skiing were a niche product, generally sold to locals for as much as $1,500. The ski industry made most of its money from day tickets. Unlike the way things work in Europe, where resorts are often owned by local or national governments, skiing in America has never been a stable business. And so basically what it's saying is that it had, it had limited season passes and it, it made all of its money selling day tickets. And also, from my understanding, the industry mainly is owned by wealthy families, nonprofits, and it just depends on snowpack. So obviously it can be kind of feast or famine, right? And I read a statement from Sarah Olson, who is Vail's vice president of communications. And she notes in quotes here, it didn't make much of an investment opportunity when she's talking about skiing. And so if you're a large organization like Vail, you are going to want to make money, right? And right now, looking at it not being a stable business, at some point around 2010, they decided to change. And since then, Vail has completely changed its entire model with the Epic Pass. And now we're also seeing the rise of the Icon Pass as well. And now, in 2024, it, the Epic Pass is just a completely different entity. And so basically, skiers can pay one price for it. And it's usually, I think, around 1000 to $1,500 still. But they can get access to just a shit ton of resorts. And basically, to do so, they can buy the pass relatively cheap. The only downside is that they have to buy the pass before the season starts. So they're basically committed before they can go, oh, well... There's, there's not enough snow. We don't want to get a pass this year. Like they are kind of, they kind of have to ski then because they get the pass. And this is good for resorts like Vail, or I mean, um, organizations like Vail, because even if the skiing's bad that year, you've already bought the Icon Pass or the Epic Pass, sorry, and they get the money. So it's a different model completely. And so, and, and the thing is too is that it's justified if you ski a lot because basically ski like three or four times, and the pass pays for itself. There's a guy, Stuart Winchester, who runs the Storm Skiing Journal, which is kind of a blog and podcast, and he notes some of the results of this change, or sorry, he notes that one of the results of this change, in quotes, is that for the first time in decades, skiing in America is reliably profitable, but it also has come at a cost to competition. He writes, everyone else is swimming around, Vail is buying everything, and I think to put all of this into perspective, I was reading in The Economist that Vail now owns 41 resorts. That's a lot. And 
This even includes small resorts in the Midwest and the East Coast. And these are important for Vail as kind of feeder resorts. So basically you can get new people into skiing. They learn at these feeder resorts that Vail also owns. And then once they get good, they will move on to other Vail resorts in the West that are much bigger and more intense. I find that, <laughs> find that really fascinating. Now, getting back to the monopoly side of this, in 2018, you then have the Icon Pass come out as kind of an alternative to the Epic Pass. It was launched by Altera Mountain Company out of Chicago, owned by the really rich Crown family. And it does something kind of similar, generates and shares revenue with other resorts. And the Economist notes here in quotes, Nowadays, most of America's biggest ski areas are on one or the other, meaning on the Epic Pass or the Icon Pass. So to summarize what we've talked about so far, basically it can cost over $200 to get a day ticket to go skiing. And because the skiing industry can be feast or famine, each year the conditions are different. Ski resorts have realized that they can't just rely on day ticket sales if it's a bad season, especially when they're charging so much money. So they sell Epic or Icon passes for like a thousand bucks to 1300 bucks before the season starts. So they've already got the money. And even if the conditions are bad that year, People have already bought the passes and are going to go. And if it's a good season, then you're making bank with day tickets that are over 200 bucks, and also getting the revenue from the Epic Pass or the Icon Pass. So <laughs> basically, the ski resorts, mainly two monopolies, <coughs> excuse me, have moved away from trying to make profits on day usage and found this new model to be effective. But now, again, this model is interesting and effective because of something that we're seeing much more happening in the United States, and it's called price discrimination. And I love economics. Like, genuinely, economics is super fascinating to me. That's why I took a lot of classes in it in college and in grad school. But anyways, usually in economic theory, excessive market power can reduce the efficiency of an industry. And what I mean here is this is because firms basically always have to reduce output to be able to charge more. Because a lot of something, a lot of production of something, makes it hard to keep something exclusive and expensive. So less output equals higher prices, right? If, if there's less of something available, you can charge more for it. And the ski industry is kind of doing something different because it is actually charging different prices to different people. And it's kind of found a loophole in this in this excessive market power output dilemma. And if you wanna maximize output and profits, it's kinda of genius for a company to do. And I think The Economist has a good point about this as well. Um, the Economist writes here in quotes, firms reduce output so as to be able to charge more. There is, however, an exception. If a, if a monopolistic firm can charge different prices to different customers, it does not need to reduce output to increase its profit. The skiing industry shows the truth of this. It writes later, as the industry is consolidated, daily prices have soared, extracting more cash from price-insensitive skiers. But if you buy a season pass early, or one of your friends does, you can get a ticket for a lot less. And so the slopes are still busy no matter what. And so, you know, people always wonder why are the ski resorts just busier than ever? And it's just that, is that the ski resorts know they can charge really high day ticket prices to people that are wealthy and still want to do this the ski trip and are fine with paying the higher prices. And then they also have sold preseason 
epic passes and icon passes to the more average Joes. And now they can travel all over the country and use their passes at dozens of resorts. And so, yeah, <laughs> that's just what happens. But the problem with this is that the sport is A, getting just more expensive, but also it's B, that <laughs> ski towns typically have a common issue. And that issue is that they really aren't well prepared for a large influx of people, cars, and also just the labor and employment needed to run busier resorts. And basically what I mean is that in small ski towns, these are usually not cities, and the infrastructure needs are hard to address. And I read an interview about the changing dynamics in ski towns, and it's an interview with a guy named Vince, they just use his first name, but he's a paramedic in Breckenridge, Colorado, and... He says something that you hear a lot of locals in this area say. He says, as the number of people with passes grew, locals started losing their shit at all of these people coming into town. Definitely have seen that. (laughs) And of course, then you just have all of the trickle-down effects of this is with more people skiing, lift lines are insane, particularly on good days to ski. Um... Basically, it used to be a skiing culture that catered to locals, and it's now just a mass business. Real estate, as I've talked about, has soared. So has property taxes. In this interview with Vince, he says he had to sell his house, move farther away. And then when when that happens, obviously, it's going to be tougher to ski. As I see in this area, traffic jams on good ski days are insane. Um, I was talking to a gal on the phone last week. And she worked at a ski resort in the area. And she said that, you know, to work at 9 or 10, she used to have to leave at 7.45 or 8. But now to get to work by 9 or 9.30, she has to leave at like 5.30 or 6 on busy weekends. And that's just something that's becoming more and more common. And parking is also no longer free. It's, it's, just, it's just kind of a madhouse. And a lot of localities are just not designed to deal with this influx in people. And talking about more negative externalities, yeah, lift or season passes are cheaper. But again, the costs of accommodation have soared. And also then you have to deal with staffing shortages. Basically, and this is something that I think COVID also just made significantly worse. But in, in, you ha- in these towns, almost all of these ski towns, from Mammoth to Breckenridge, to Park City, to all of them, Jackson Hole. (laughs) Houses cost millions of dollars there. When you're getting paid $20 to $25 an hour to work at a ski resort, it's it's a bit difficult, right? And and this now sounds a lot like the airline industry where they overbook seats and then hope people are going to cancel. Also, they let everyone bring a carry-on on, but then there's not enough room in the overhead. This sounds similar, and what I mean is that then you also have the biggest days of the year. They, they end up having to ration lift tickets and rise the cost of things like parking to keep the crowds away. They, they've sold so many of these passes that on good days, they can't actually handle the crowds that come. Sounds to me a little bit like the airline industry, actually. And, and I, I guess um, it seems like instead of just trying to increase demand and prices... In fact, this entire industry probably needs more supply-side reforms. And what I mean by that is public policy decisions that try to make the industry more efficient and productive. And I think this would be, you know, the construction of new housing, better transportation in some of the more popular spots. And this is happening, by the way. This is happening, but maybe not quick enough. 
but you need more affordable housing. You probably need better roads, which is tough in mountain towns, and obviously transportation where you can get people to the resorts without them driving. But then at the same time, it does seem almost impossible for me to think that a lot of people are not going to want to drive. And the thing is, also, I mean, <laughs> expanding or opening new resorts so you can spread out the population masses more would also be an alternative. But that's extremely difficult just thanks to environmental challenges such as regulation, just hesitance towards building new resorts that could impact the environment, climate change as well, and just the fact that there aren't that many other places to build them near metropolitan areas. But yeah, so there are contradictions again to this as well, because of course it's easier said than done talking about constructing new housing and transportation hubs and all of that. But there have been failed attempts at doing this at Vail Mountain, like the actual Vail Mountain. I guess the local government there basically squashed a plan to build more employee housing last year because they instead wanted to create a wildlife sanctuary for bighorn sheep. I'm going to stay out of that debate for right now because I can kind of understand both sides of that. But again, if Vail wants to keep bringing people in to ski and they don't have enough employees that can afford to live there, yeah, the city probably does need to incentivize that to be built. Another example is in Park City. It planned to upgrade two chairlifts, but they were blocked over fears that it would just make the traffic jams worse. Sorry, And the other problem too, back to that guy who writes the ski blog, he talked about how, yeah, transportation, like public transportation would be good in theory, but, but he says in quotes, cars at scale do not work in the mountains but local officials simply cannot imagine skiers arriving without their own vehicles and public transportation options are often limited. Now, honestly, I actually think it is easier to probably put blame on the Epic Pass and the Icon Pass before saying local governments need to do more just because it is actually tough to do much more in smaller towns, ski towns where mother nature and just the size and scale and just tax revenue they get is is limited compared to cities to actually do a lot. I think it's easier to look at what these giant corporations have done in order to maximize profits no matter what and it's it's over it's oversaturated the entire industry. And I think the most interesting part about this though zooming out is I think this entire situation just reflects how the American economy is changing. I was, I, was, I was alluding to the airline industry earlier, right? And The Economist had a piece from a few weeks ago, not related to this, but it talks about how, you know, the airline industry was always unprofitable, but nowadays it's actually doing quite well. And it's because of market power and price discrimination. It writes here in quotes, prices, or sorry, <laughs> flights are expensive and uncomfortable, but those who accumulate the right credit card points and are loyal to a particular airline can get them much cheaper and planes almost never take off with any empty seats. And also I should mention that fast food restaurants are turning to this as well. Wendy's, a place I haven't, I don't know if I've ever been to a Wendy's. Oh no, I think I've been to a Wendy's in, in Seattle's airport once. Anyways, Wendy's had to backtrack apparent plans to do price discrimination where they would look at their different stores, different hours, and basically charge way more at dinner time than at lunchtime because the assumption was the people coming for dinner would be willing to pay more for dinner than for lunch. People were pissed off. They scrapped it. But 
You're also seeing this with McDonald's prices around the country. There's all these viral TikToks um, and Instagram reels about like about just the insane cost of like a family of four eating at McDonald's now and just price gouging in general. I think it just shows that companies are willing to just do whatever to get profits and they're, and they're making it work. But again, it comes at the expense of the consumer. But I never thought I would be comparing the airline industry to the downhill alpine skiing industry, but it kind of makes sense after you really think about it. So interesting stuff. I, I'm curious to see what downhill skiing looks like in another decade. Moving on, though, let's talk about the Supreme Court, Trump. I don't want to stay on this too long because it does just piss me off. And honestly, it's been a pretty good day and I don't have the emotional energy to stay too long on this. But I do want to talk about how the Supreme Court has basically made an active choice to hear out Trump's arguments on presidential immunity. And honestly, the, the Supreme Court just doesn't have to do this. But by doing so, it's, in my opinion, delaying justice helping Trump, and again, like Trump has done in many of his court cases in history, kick the can down the road, draw it out as long as possible. Now, in The Atlantic, Paul Rosenvig writes in quotes, there is nothing mandatory about what the Supreme Court has done with Donald Trump's appeal. On the contrary, the decision to hear his petition for presidential immunity and delay his criminal trial for the January 6th insurrection is an affirmative choice, meaning they are purposefully doing this and they are making an active choice to do this. Going backwards a little bit, I want to start with a, with a uh, historical example here. It involves friend of the pod, Richard Nixon. <laughs> and um, back in the 1970s, there was a time when Richard Nixon chose to appeal a court order where he had to turn over his infamous presidential tapes while the order was pending. At this point, the Supreme Court had to make a decision, and it did something very different than what our current Supreme Court is doing. From my understanding, the district court decision, which was the one that required Nixon to produce the tapes, it was issued in May, late May, May 31st of 1974, and the Supreme Court agreed with a motion to skip the appeals court altogether, so the next step after the district court. And basically the Supreme Court was like, this doesn't need to go to the appeals court, we're just going to directly take the case. And so they took it from the district court, skipped the appeals court, and it went to the Supreme Court. And they did this because the court understood the timely matter and urgency of this case and knew it needed to be rushed through and not held up. SCOTUS, at the time, ended up hearing this argument only 39 days later, from May 31st, they heard it on July 8th. And it was actually pretty impressive because um, the total time from the district court decision to the final decision of the Supreme Court was 54 days, which, which these days I, I actually just can't even fathom. That just seems like something fast and unrealistic that would just never happen anymore. Now, the reason I bring this up is because the current Supreme Court is pretty much doing the opposite and taking its damn time to do so. And we have to remember that there already was a district court decision that denied Trump's immunity case. That happened December 1st of last year, 2023. Around that time, after the district uh, court denied Trump's case, special counsel Jack Smith pretty much begged the Supreme Court to go along with the Nixon precedent and take the case directly and do it efficiently so we can get answers, which the American people deserve. And you won't be surprised to know that the court did not do so. The majority is conservative, three of them appointed by Trump himself. You guys know all that. Hmm. So then, 
to create a little timeline here, this is after December when Jack Smith begged the court to take it and do it quickly. Then it took 60 days for the appeals court to issue its decision in early February. So December 1st, district court denies it. Then it takes 60 more days for the appeals court, right, to issue its decision in early February. Jack Smith, again, asked the Supreme Court to just let the decision stand. He's like, okay, it's gone through the district courts. It's gone through the appeals court. You guys don't need to look at this. But of course, two days ago, the 28th, SCOTUS waited and then said they were actually going to hear the case. The, the remarkable part about all of this is that now the court has said they're going to wait until April 22nd for oral arguments. That's like 52 days. Yeah, 52 days from now. Today is March 1st. And <laughs> that's a long time, guys. <laughs> and back to that Atlantic article, it writes in quotes, the same court that took 54 days to hear and decide Nixon's case from soup to nuts has just scheduled 54 days of mere waiting around for briefing before oral arguments. Briefing in a case that has been fully briefed twice before and in which appeal arguments could be filed within a week at most. He, he also continues writing, total time from district court decision to argument in front of the Supreme Court, 152 days, guys. So that's like almost getting close to half a year. Totally insane. Oh, and we also have to remember <laughs> that even though they're going to start oral arguments on April 22nd, they might actually wait until June, which is the end of its term before recess, to actually make a decision. So it could be a pretty damn long time. Really just shows how efficient they are, right? And, okay, <laughs> aren't our courts meant to be a good check on the other branches of government? Because right now it kind of seems like SCOTUS is trying to protect Trump or at the best buy him time because if the court actually cared about this decision i would have i would have assumed that they would follow the nixon precedent have said no we'll take the case month like back in december and just skip the whole appeals process because now we're going to have this case heard three different times on three different levels of our judicial system so it just looks like the court's right-wing justices are just trying to delay this so now getting to the ramifications of this if we assume that judge tanya chutkin holds to a timeline that's maybe similar to this. Say the court makes a decision on June 30th. By the time all of this is said and done, we might be looking at a trial that starts sometime around October, maybe end of September. <laughs> then you kind of have the worst case scenario where you have a trial starting literally like a month before the election. And that's like that worst case scenario where you almost think Chutkin would just have to then delay the trial until after the election due to just the chaos of having a trial during the election and all the violence and fear-mongering that would ensue and Trump's political attacks. But then again, if that happens, I mean, Trump has a good chance of winning, in my opinion. If Trump wins, no trial. Back to Paul Rochenwig, Rochenwig who um, wrote that Atlantic article I was referencing. He's a smart guy, Deputy Assistant Secretary for Policy of the Department of Homeland Security, worked in the Clinton administration, in the Bush administration. Anyways, I think he writes it best. He says in quotes, The costs of the court's delay are thus clear. The delay in justice makes it possible that Trump will never face federal criminal charges for his role in inciting the January 6th insurrection. The Supreme Court will have been complicit in affording him the delay he so desperately desires. He later writes in the piece in quotes, 
And that, in the end, is the most terribly depressing part of this episode. Those who had seen the courts as the final guardrail against Trumpist authoritarianism now must face the prospect that they are not. Adjudication of law is becoming kabuki theater of politics masquerading as reason. <clears throat> Isn't that nice? But I can't, I can't agree more. And, of course, the, court, the courts are partisan. We know what they've been up to. And, again, I don't want to get too conspiratorial here. But, look, I, I think justices like Samuel Alito want to retire soon. And they would definitely rather retire with a Republican president in, in office so that he can appoint another conservative justice. And, look, a lot of polling shows that if Trump was actually convicted of one of these crimes, I think his, his electability would be hurt. And so maybe... The, some of the Supreme Court justices have calculated that if Trump is convicted of a crime, his electability is hurt, then maybe they can't get more conservative justices appointed. So protecting him or delaying a trial may be the best way to ensure he wins so they can keep control of the court. Isn't that a nice democratic process, guys? <sighs> well, that's going to do it for today. Watching the snow come back in again. Have a great Friday night, first day of March. I think we have about, what, two weeks, a little less than two weeks until daylight savings time changes, and I'm here for it. So anyways, have a great rest of your night. You can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean. I think you guys know the rest. Adios. Adios.